What is up, Substance? Make some noise wherever you are at. I want to welcome everybody joining us online wherever you are at. Man, it's fun to be in church today. And if we haven't met yet, I'm Pastor Peter. And of course, over the last several weeks, we've been really talking about the lost art of evangelism, the lost art of evangelism, sharing the good news, which um, a, lot of, a lot of times, you know, this topic makes certain people nervous because they have all these preconceived ideas about how it works. But really, it's kind of like talking about your favorite food. It's not hard. You know what I'm saying? It's a natural thing. It just should flow out of you. But I, I think that, you know, we, we, we overcomplicate it. And I, I just, what I've been trying to do is just simplify the way that we we share Christ with other people. And, and maybe you're here today and you're like, you're new to this whole God thing. Well, uh, I, again, I, I think even you will be able to grab a whole bunch of principles from what I'm about to share with you. But I, I want to set up our Bible text today by, by sharing kind of an, a, a fascinating story that I heard from a missionary a while back uh, named Norman Brinkley. Uh, many of you guys might remember Stefan, who has done a lot of stuff with our church worship over the years. Well, his dad used to be a, a missionary who would smuggle Bibles into Islamic parts of Africa where it's illegal to, uh, to practice Christianity. And of course, a lot of, you know, he, their, their, their team of Bible smugglers were eventually driven out by extremists, but uh, they would do a lot of stuff in areas like Chad or, um, you know, in, in the Sudan. And, and he, he shared a miracle that I thought really it just gripped me. I've never been able to forget this ever since he shared it. Um, they were ministering one day in a city called Al-Fashir and, uh, in western Sudan. It's like right on the border of western Sudan in, in Chad. And, of course, at the time, they had to travel by at nighttime because the sand was so hot that it would pop their car tires. Okay, that's a problem we don't experience in Minnesota very often. But I... I you know, so they had to drive at nighttime just to, you know, because the sand was, was cooler. And, of course, um, so they were driving through the night to get to that one city. And uh, the, uh, they, as morning came, they, their, their, the sand was getting hot. The car was getting hot. And so they were forced to pull over the car just to make sure that, uh, you know, the engine didn't explode, right? And so they had to pull over at the bottom of a hill. And they thought, okay, let's just let the car cool down. Let's stretch our legs. They all got out of the car. This was not a planned stop. And, um, you know, it, but as they were sitting at the bottom of this hill, all of a sudden this man at the top of the hill came running towards them. And they're looking at this man running towards them. And he comes up and he says, is there a man? Is there a man by the name of Norman here? Are you Norman? Are you Norman? Are you Norman? And, and they were like, this is such a peculiar guy. Like, and, of course, you know, Norman Brinkley, he's like, well, my name is Norman. You know, but do I tell this guy my name is Norman? Well, he's looking for a Norman, and he goes, uh, well, yeah, I'm Norman, you know? And, of course, the team was, like, mystified, and they're all, do you know this guy, Norman? Like, well, like, how, you know, and, 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 you know, of course, he didn't. But th this African man said, well, Norman, I have heard that you possess a book of life. Is that true? Like, a, a, a book of life. It, it's like... It's like black, and it has like gold writing on it. And, and you know, Norman is thinking, well, I'm a, I'm a Bible smuggler, and uh, yeah, yeah, I do. I, technically I do, but I don't know if I want to tell you that, right? But, you know, he's like, well, there, there's a book of like, life. Is that true? Do you, Norman, your name is Norman, right? And he's like, yes. Do you have a book of life? 
And he's like, well, yeah, like I do. And he runs to the car and grabs a Bible and he, like, like this. And the moment the guy saw the Bible, he started freaking out and he runs up, grabs it and says, where have you guys been? And then he started kissing the Bible, just kissing it over and over and over again. And then he pressed it to his forehead and then he started kissing it again. And then he goes, oh, I just need a moment to pray. And, and they're all just like, who is this guy? He's really kind of unique, right? And of course, you know, what is going on? Why is this guy so excited? Well, after they prayed, you know, even Norman was confused. And he finally said, well, okay, first off, how did you know me and how did you know my name was Norman and why did you, like, how did you know that we had a, a Bible like this? And, and the African man goes, about 20 years ago, I was standing at the top of this hill and I had this dramatic vision. It was like a, it was like a super vivid dream that someday on this very hill, at this time in the morning, there would be a guy by the name of Norman who would just randomly show up with this book of life that was gonna change everything for me and my family and for my village. And, and, and I saw you parked at the bottom of the hill and I just knew the vision is finally happening. And it has. And so they were all kind of like, this is the weirdest moment of my life. I mean, is this, is this, I mean, this is like kind of crazy. And, and, and now, like, the reason why I shared that story with you is because actually the Bible is filled with stories that are actually quite similar to this, where God supernaturally revealed himself to people. He did it with a man by the name of Cornelius, and said, and he got a, where Cornelius got a vision and sent for a man named Peter, okay? The same thing happened with a man by the name of Saul, who actually was a murderer of Christians, and he has this divine vision of, of Jesus. You see, all throughout the Bible, as well as history, there are stories that are, are, are similar to this. Okay, Now, what, what, what does that reveal about the type of God that we serve with the Bible? It, it, it's, first off, it says that God can supernaturally reveal himself to anyone. Okay, If you're wondering uh, you know, if what God can do, well, it says something about who he is. He wants to reveal himself. Now, and, and maybe you're like, yeah, but, but Pastor Peter, why did... Why did it take 20 years? I have no idea. You know what I'm saying? Why would God give God, uh, some dude a vision and then 20 years fulfill it later? I mean, I don't know. I mean, we could create all sorts of theories. Maybe, you know, perhaps God spoke to two other guys named Norman and they didn't obey. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, call up Norman number three. You know what I'm saying? And then, you know, uh, do, do we even, the angels were like, do we even have a Norman number three? I got like 68 Mustafas and, uh, you know, 21 Samirs. Nope, this is North Africa. It's got to be Norman. It's got to be unique. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I don't know, maybe. You know, perhaps God in his sovereignty knew that, well, Western Sudan won't be even open to the gospel until such and such a time. And therefore we will, you know, I, I have no idea. We could theorize forever and ever. But what we do know is that God does have a timing for things. At the proper time, you will reap a harvest. And that God loves to reveal himself. And yet the third thing is, is he also loves to use you and me. Yes, he'll do dramatic, um, you know, supernatural things. But at the end of the day, he still will use you and I. It took a Norman. It took the Apostle Peter to lead Cornelius. It took Ananias to lead Saul to Christ. You see, God does want to use us. And sometimes that can be a little perplexing. But it is what it is, right? I mean, we have to figure out how to become better at it. God, 
how can you use me to fulfill this great and glorious gospel that you are unveiling to the earth? Well, now, about 50 years ago, there was a Christian researcher by the name of James Engel, and he, he was studying, you know, like, uh, why does evangelism work in certain nations and not other nations? And, and of course, he, he, he came up with this idea that became known as Engel's scale of evangelism. And what it is, it's, this, it's, a, it's basically this idea that the average person needs to have um, 10 positive encounters with the gospel before they will actually receive the gospel. Okay, so if you think about it, imagine if somebody started out at like negative 10. Okay, so here's salvation. Here's somebody giving their life to Christ. They're praying the, you know, the prayer to experience Christ and, you know, gain access to heaven. Well, a lot of people, they start at like negative 10. Let's say they're openly hostile to Christianity. They hate Christians, right? Well, then they have a, a positive encounter with the Christians. Well, maybe I only partially hate Christians. I only hate those Christians, okay? And then they become a little more open. And I'm like, well, maybe the Christian worldview isn't fully absurd. I still don't agree with it. And then they have another positive encounter. Well, maybe the Christian worldview has more insight than I previously gave it thought. And then they become a little more exposed. Again, over these exposures, eventually they get to a threshold known as the salvation moment. Now, a lot of times when we share Christ, we're always thinking about it as a singular moment when in reality, it's a sequence of, of moments where we're just sowing seed. And I, I say this, what, the, the thing that I do like about Engel's scale is that it kind of breaks Christianity down into more baby steps. And I think if we saw ourselves as just nudging people closer, right? We're, we're simply participating in a process where we're showing people the kindness of God. Romans 2.4, it's God's kindness that leads people to repent right, which is really the salvation moment, I think a lot of times we're so worried about this step that we forget, hey, actually we're just helping them go from, from negative 10 to negative 9, from negative 9 to negative 8, okay? In other words, don't overanalyze the process, just be a part of it. Does that make sense? It's actually not that complicated. Don't worry which of the 10 encounters you are, just be one of them. You know what I'm saying? Your job is simply help people have an encounter with Christianity that is truly good news. That's why we call it the gospel, good news. Well, we are being the good news, just sowing little seeds. Now, but, but in order to do this process here, okay, we've got to understand two different counterintuitive ideas. And I want to point these out to you because, because when we explore these two counterintuitive ideas, I think you're going to understand how the gospel works in this process, okay? And here they are. Most non-Christians don't know they're religious. All, all people are people of faith. There's no human on earth that it does not, there's no worldview on earth that does not require faith, okay? It's not do you have faith or do you not have faith. It's faith in this versus faith in that. Okay? Now, and most non-Christians don't think of themselves as having faith, but they actually do. The second thing is, is most Christians don't realize they're not actually Christians. And, and I know that sounds kind of sassy, but I'm going to actually explain that both of these things are actually true. And once we understand that, it's going to change how we think about the gospel. Okay, so now, uh, allow me to dive into the first one. Most non-Christians don't know that they're religious. Okay, now, for example, atheists and humanists, they don't like to think of themselves as being religious. They don't like to think of 
atheism as a religion, but it's very, very much a religion, okay? It act, in other words, it requires faith in order to believe it. It has giant assumptions about the universe that go beyond science, okay? And like all religions, it shares the same components of, of all the other classical world religions. In fact, you know, you could talk about atheism, hedonism, romanticism, political activism. These are all religions, and they all share belief systems in common. Four things in particular, and I want to point these out to you, okay? All religious worldviews, really all worldviews, have these same four elements. They all have a creation narrative, how we got here. They all have a sin narrative, how the world got screwed up. They all have a savior narrative, what is the solution to these problems? And they all have a redemption narrative, what it would look like if we could all just embrace these principles. Okay, now, let me, let me just start with how we got here, okay? How did the universe come into existence, okay? Uh, uh, at some point or another, even if you're an atheist, you have to have what's called a cosmology, a belief system about how we arrived here. Now, some people believe that we just spontaneously arrived out of nothing and organized ourselves into a higher order, and next thing you know, we have, you know, the bachelorette, we have croc shoes, and we have playstations, you know what I'm saying? And we kill each other through virtual digital software, okay? So we, you know, at some point, we have to have this idea of how did we get here? Now, let's say, you know, like, it's like the old saying goes, if you were walking along a beach and all of a sudden, let's say you found like one of those old pocket watches, like with a chain, and you open it up and you can see all the little gears turning, you found it on the beach, how many of you would say, oh, what an interesting, curious thing that the ocean spontaneously arranged all by itself. How many of you would say that? Very few of you, okay? Now, why? Because a watch necessitates a watchmaker. You wouldn't think that the ocean randomly assembled this watch all by itself, okay? In fact, so, so, but, but, but let's say atheism actually does expect us to believe the, the universe did spontaneously evolve itself into uh, an irreducibly complex reality, okay? So atheism not only believe, you know, would require us to believe that the world spontaneously arrived and now all of a sudden this pocket watch exists, so to speak, the pocket watch is a metaphor for the universe, the world, right? Not only, but not only that, but the, the, the ocean spontaneously arranged enough male and female watches that over time they realize they can make little baby watches inside one of the watches. And then that's the, the, I mean, you have to have an idea of how we got here, okay? Because again, we, we, we know through, you know, the second law of thermodynamics that everything tends to disorder unless it is acted upon by a higher intelligence, okay? So, but, but atheists believe, no, there is no higher intelligence. We are the higher intelligence, okay? Well, other worldviews say, no, there's got to be, even if you believed in aliens, it's some sort of higher intelligence, right? That, you know, you, you have to have a, comp, a, a cosmology, whether you want to think about it or not, we have to have, we all have one, okay? So that's, that's the idea which leads us to the next one, the sin narrative. All worldviews have, how did the world get so screwed up, right? And we, we all, you know, every religion will point to a different thing. So, for example... Some people say the world is screwed up because of its free market capitalist greed. 
You know what I'm saying? That's why the world is screwed up. Other people say, no, it's the swamp. It's the crooked politicians who exist to keep themselves in power. No, other people say, it's intolerant people in, in religious worldviews that don't allow for a diversity of worldview. No, it's the Illuminati controlled by aliens. You know what I'm saying? They, we all have different, and some of you are like, yeah, that's my, that's my family right there. You just summed up my Thanksgiving. Okay, now, like, but, but, but think about it. Everybody has a, a, uh, a, a different sin narrative, which leads to a different savior narrative. Every worldview has a different, what is, in light of these problems, what is the solution to those problems? Okay, so every religion has a different solution, okay? So for example, a lot of Muslims believe in declaring caliphates or Sharia law. If, if the world would embrace Sharia law, then we would have more peace. Or if you're a socialist or a Marxist, it'll happen by having a, a centralized government that can force equality upon the people. And then we're, you know, we'll be able to evolve beyond our present state. And others say, no, well, it, again, if we could just shift wealth from this group to that group, then all of a sudden, you know, there won't be any more sin because there won't be any more tension on the earth, right? Or, or you know, others say it's, you know, enlightenment thought through science. If we could just eliminate all poverty, there won't be any war because we all know that rich people never are cranky. You know what I'm saying? And we can just get there through science. Or maybe it's through uh, sexual expression. If we could just help everyone embrace their sexual impulses and, and appreciate it, then everybody will be magically fulfilled and content. You see, all of these religions have names. We might call them hedonism. We might call them materialism. We might call them romanticism. Pursuing, you know, it's pursuing the divine through relationships with other humans. Uh, or sexually, we could call it narcissism, making us ourselves feel so empowered in, or, or act political activism. We may not see these things as religions, nor we, we may not agree with the classical versions of each of these religions, but they very much are religions. They all have a legislative agenda, and they all come with their own set of ethical priorities about the order in which we solve the world's problems. Does that make sense? Okay, now I'm trying to speak philosophically because it's important you understand, again, all humans have these narratives, and ultimately they all have a redemption narrative. If we could just get everyone to think like me, embrace these types of things, after this, that results in some sort of power shift, or maybe it's a money shift, or maybe it's an ideological shift, and then we will evolve beyond our sin, we'll hold hands and sing kumbaya, or whatever it is that your worldview believes. Okay, so now, this, these narratives, now the reason why it's important to see that everyone technically has a religion because once you can acknowledge this, then you can actually analyze the logical implications of each religion, okay? Now, just even me talking out loud about all these different worldviews, some of them appear kind of ridiculous, right? And it's kind of easy for me as a speaker to kind of poke fun, but you can poke fun of everything, including Christianity, okay? I just, but, but it's important to, to see it philosophically because how do you know what people actually believe? Well, you just listen to them talk. If you ask them enough questions, you can ask pointed questions about any number of these things and actually reveal a person's narrative, okay? So now, 
Um, you know, it's important, though, because if you don't see them as religions, you cannot analyze the logical implications of each, the utility of each worldview as a religion. Because at the end of the day, if they don't truly make, if, if our worldview doesn't truly make sense of the universe, and if it doesn't truly solves the world's problems, then, you know, is it really worthy of our trust? That's the question. It's the question that all humans have to answer. And uh, so coming back to these two counterintuitive ideas, okay, most non-Christians don't know they're religious. Now, I, I, I think witnessing is just helping people to see, oh, you actually do have a worldview. How is that worldview working for you? Really, that's what witnessing is. And, and witnessing is actually saying, hey, I've experienced something that I think is worth trying out. It, just even a car that I think is a better car, you might wanna just test drive it, okay? Really, that's what witnessing is, okay? You're not arguing for the supremacy of your car. God doesn't need you to argue for the supremacy of himself. He already is supreme, you know what I'm saying? It's more like, hey, I'm just gonna witness about it, okay? So that's, that's the first idea. But the second idea is this. Most Christians don't realize they're not actually Christians. Now. I, I point this out because I just point, I just kind of poked fun of a lot of different worldviews in that last little segment. I hopefully, uh, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, hopefully we're still friends and we can still love each other because you know, I can poke fun of Christianity a lot too, okay? Uh, the, the, the funny thing about all those different worldviews, hedonism, materialism, romanticism, political activism, what, what, what's interesting about a lot of those things is that a lot of Christians actually believe those religions and don't even know it. They're actually more materialistic than they are Christian, more hedonistic than, than they are Christian, more romanticism, more political activism than they are Christian, and they don't even know it. In fact, most Christians fail to realize that actually they, their, their faith is not really Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity. It is a composite of three to five different world religions, and they didn't even know it. Okay, now, for example, Jesus actually did this at the Sermon on the Mount. You know, everybody was wondering, you know, like, who is Jesus? What does he believe? What does he teach? And, and so all these Jewish people from all over the region came to see him on this mountainside. And in Matthew 6, he actually said, hey, I'll, I'll, you know, he knew that he was speaking to a Jewish audience. And he's saying, hey, a lot of you think you serve, you know, God the Father. You think you serve Yahweh, but actually you serve Mammon, who was the God of money. And he goes, how do, I, how do you know if you serve mammon versus, versus God the Father? Well, just look at your behavior. If you can't even trust God with a small amount of your treasure, then don't think that you're trusting God with your eternal soul. And so Jesus said the hard lesson of you can't serve two masters. Actually, it, what he was pointing out was, hey, we're actually, a lot of us, we serve the God of materialism more than we realize. And at the end of the day, you can't have a composite, okay? That's, that's called syncretism, okay? Jesus was saying, hey, you have a form of syncretism, and how do you know? Just look at your behavior. And what is syncretism? According to Webster's Dictionary, it's the combination of different forms of belief or practices. It's like taking several world religions and merging them into one. It's the fusion of two or more originally different inflection forms, two different types of of of, of worldviews and putting them into one. Now, the, the, this, the reason why I say this is because actually the, the, when a lot of people have a struggle sharing the gospel and people, like a lot of people have come up to me and they said, well, my relatives, they just refuse to 
accept biblical Christianity and and uh, you know, and I'm like, no, you know, like it doesn't take long to say, oh, actually, they're not rejecting Christianity; they're rejecting your demonstration of it. You know what I'm saying? Like, actually, what the thing is, is you think you're a Christian, but you're actually a syncretist, and they're actually just acknowledge. They're just saying, I don't think that actually is better than my worldview, right? They're 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 comparing syncretism with syncretism. In other words, okay, imagine this. Imagine if there was a secret document that existed somewhere about you, and all I had to do was log onto a computer, and I could click on a file, and it would tell me how you spent every minute of this last year. Okay, now that would be kind of scary, wouldn't it? If I could be like, hey, you spent this much time sleeping, this much time eating Cheetos, and uh, this much time watching The Bachelorette. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know why I keep talking about it, but I, I just... I, you know, like, imagine if you had that readout, right? And, like, and then and somebody could look at how you spent every minute of this last year. And then imagine if in that same dossier, that same file, people could find out exactly how you spent your money. Every dollar that came in, every dollar that went out. And you could look at it and you could say, wow, I spent that much money on dog food, you know what I'm saying? Like, and everybody knew it, okay? Everybody could see it because this document has all the information on your time and your money. But then imagine like, oh man, you can expand it all the way down into every thought that you had of the previous year and what was it about. And it could be even put into a nice spreadsheet with categories and dials. And it said, yes, you thought about nothing about 33% of the time. Come on, spaced out ADHD people. Woo! Okay, and then others of you, you were like, you thought about your spouse this much. You thought about, you know, these terrible things, this killing your boss this much. You thought about, and then every thought was there, okay? And not only every thought, but every motive. You could even, well, what was the motive behind that thought? Oh, it was actually narcissism. You just wanted more for you. Or actually, it was servanthood. We could see the motives. Now, imagine if I had that dossier, and imagine if I had a jury come and I tasked that jury with the goal of figuring out what is your actual religion based on those categories. They have access to everything. You can take as much time as you want. This little jury team is going to analyze it, and they're going to come out and eventually say, they have to decide, what is your creation narrative or your sin narrative, your solution narrative, based on how you spent your time, money, thoughts, motives, Etc. What is the religion that you actually embrace? And, you know, I mean, they say they're a Christian, but are they actually a Christian? And then they come out, the jury finally is like ready to render a verdict. They come out, and, and now I'm in, you know, let's just put me in the hot seat, okay? Peter Haas is now sitting in front, and the jury's like, we are now here to declare exactly what Peter's de facto real worldview actually is based on this last year, and this is what we determined. And they have a nice PowerPoint presentation, and it says Peter's actual worldview, Peter's actual religion. He's 21% Christian. Okay, that's better than most, okay? But you're actually 23% narcissist. Now, hopefully this isn't actually, you know, my wife is looking at this saying, well, I would adjust it like this. But I, I just... Okay, just hypothetically, let's say the jury comes back and they say, Peter, you're 21% Christian, you are 23% narcissist, you are actually 32% materialistic, 
you know, the way that you think, and you're actually 9% hedonism, and you're 15% political activism. You think the solution to the world's problems is you getting more money, you having more pleasure, you getting your favorite politician, you just being you, you're in control, and then, and then salt in a little Christianity. It's just a little flavor. You know what I'm saying? Okay, now, here's, the reason why I did this is because all of us have a form of syncretism. All of us would have a little more than just, there's, there's no person in this room that, is a, that calls himself a Christian that is literally 100% Christian, otherwise you would be Jesus, you know what I'm saying? But I, I just, you get the idea that we all have a sin nature and that sin nature causes us to have a form of syncretism. Now, well, well why does this syncretism happen? Well, we could think of a million reasons, but I think the simplest is that we're just not exposing ourselves to God's word, God's church, and God's Holy Spirit enough. Does that make sense? Okay, so, so we're, we're not getting enough of God in us to really make a difference, okay? Uh, it's, it's actually kind of interesting. I was reading a study just this last, the last two weeks where it, it was actually analyzing how often Christians actually read their Bibles, Okay, because you'd think that if the Bible is, you know, as important as we believe it is, that we would read it more. But yet, only 15% of Christians actually read their Bibles the majority of days each week. Only 15%. And uh, now, I, I, you know, it really just kind of revealed to me, well, of course. Uh, you know, as, as Americans, we have access to more Christian knowledge than any Christian that has ever walked the face of planet Earth. But we're also the most distracted Christians who have ever walked the face of earth. You know what I'm saying? I, I think at some point we, we, the, we have the gospel, but it's just so crowded out of our lives that it doesn't actually affect us. And, and a lot of us, we don't know the Bible as much as we think we do, but we have a lot of these, you know, we'll listen to a million syncretistic podcasts that are, you know, they're 35% Christian, the rest all political, or they're, you know, they're, uh, you know, 43% Christian, but actually it's kind of a weird Americanized, you know, hedonistic approach to Christianity. And we have these, these syncretistic forms that we don't even realize it. We didn't even know we had it. Well, again, why is it important to acknowledge this? Well, I think it's easier to see the syncretism in other people than it is to see in ourselves, Right? We see it in our family members and our relatives, right? But like the old saying goes, we judge ourselves by our intentions. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, but then we judge others by their actions. And it's easy to see sin issues in other people than it is to see in ourselves. And I, I think here's what happens with American evangelism. Unfortunately, a lot of us, we try to influence our friends and our families with our syncretistic, weird versions of Christianity instead of the real one. And then we wonder why it backfires. It's actually because we don't have a truly surrendered life that represents who God is. And when they see that, they're like, ah, I don't know if that's good news. I don't know if that really solves the world's issues. And then we wonder, why, like, what, they're actually not rejecting the gospel. They're rejecting our version of it, okay? Which is why all of a sudden you can understand why Hebrews 12 says, without holiness... No one will see the Lord, okay? Because really what it's saying is, if you don't look like God, 
people are not going to say, ah, that's good news, or that, that actually makes sense to me. That actually suddenly helps me understand the origin of the universe or the solution to the world's problems. You see, a lot of us, we have good Christian cosmology, but actually our, our solution, our savior narrative is more politics than it is Jesus, or it's more this than that. You, you get the idea. We're actually not, we don't have a holy, sanctified version of Christianity that allows people to actually see what Christianity is. Or as, as Jesus put it at the Sermon on the Mount, you're the salt of the earth. Okay, that, that was a preserving agent in those days. It kept things from rotting. This is pre-refrigeration, remember. Okay, so salt was actually one of the most valuable commodities on planet Earth in those days. Okay, so it was very expensive. You, and he's saying, you are the, the, the very thing that keeps the Earth from rotting. But if the salt loses its saltiness... In other words, if we're no longer following the plan that God has for us in terms of generosity and finances and sexuality and all these things, then, then you're not actually a preserving agent anymore. It can't be made salty again. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled. He's, he's using a metaphor of what happens when salt wears out. And, and, and here's the deal. Jesus was not suggesting that you and I need to become perfect before we share the gospel. Otherwise, none of us would ever be able to share it, right? God uses imperfect people. That's the whole point. But I, I, I do believe that we can become saltier. And the question is how? By once again, exposing your soul to God's spirit and God's word. There's something about exposing your soul to God's word that changes things. In fact, I, I just, I read a study how, on, on people that read their Bibles more than four, four or more days a week, okay, four, four of the seven. Christians who read their Bibles at least four days a week are 57% less likely to have alcohol addictions, sex addictions, gambling addictions, and it, the list goes on. I mean, you could almost think of almost any number of Christian behaviors, and it even goes into, this is the, the average of the total, but it, it actually goes into, if you read your Bible for four or more days a week, it, you know, it, it decreases um, porn use by like what, like 61 to 68 percent. It, it, all these habits suddenly spin out of reading the Bible for four days a week. Now, it, 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 I don't know what it is about four days, but it, it, research has proven that it's a threshold, that the moment people cross the threshold of four or more days, all of these habits tend to spin out. Like they call it a keystone habit, a habit that leads to a million other habits. But the moment, this is the, this is the weirdest thing ever. Get this. Christians who read their Bibles for three or less have none of the benefits. Not a single one. None of the habits. They, they don't, there's no evidence statistically that they are predisposed towards any Christian behaviors. In fact, actually, they're more depressed about it. And, and they found the same thing is true with church attendance. That people who attend church weekly, it, there's a threshold. Anybody that, that misses church more than once a month, all of the Christian habits and fulfillment, it tends to just plummet. And so they found that there's this really bizarre threshold, and we could theorize as to what it is. Um, but, I mean, in some ways, the Bible's been saying it all along. Psalm 1, I mean, we could, I could quote a, a million verses that say the same thing. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. It's just a fancy way of saying the Bible. 
His delight is in the Bible, and on that law, he meditates day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Man, could you imagine what would happen if we could get to that place? Whatever they do prospers. Does that mean your life is perfect? No, but that means that when somebody looks at the overall trend of your marriage, your finances, whatever, your parenting, whatever you do prospers. You see, that's what happens when we, and how do we get there? Meditate on the law day and night. Okay, all I'm simply saying is, hey, what if, what if the Bible was true all along? We just, all we got to do is the majority of days, there's seven days in a week, just more than three and a half, that's four, right? So, I mean, again, you just got a little metric for, for how you can tip into some of these benefits. It, it's almost, it, it's weird to think that there's this little magical threshold, but I, I say all of this to say, at some point in all of our lives, our syncretism will be exposed, and how do you know? How do you know when you have syncretism? Well, the Bible says sorrow is the key indicator, okay? So check this out. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. Wow, that's a Bible promise for us. You know, think about it. It's a guaranteed promise that if we are finding fulfillment in things other than God, if we are finding solutions in things more than God intended, that's called an idol. Okay, we don't like to see ourselves as worshiping idols because we think of it as like the classic sense of bowing down before a statue. But really, it's, it's fulfillment and, and thinking the solution is something more than what God intended. That's called a false god. And what it says is the sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. There's a guaranteed chance of sorrow when when we hit a wall with our syncretism. And I, I would like to suggest that, hey, maybe when you have sorrow in your life, just take a step back and say, hey, what do I actually believe? And is that in sync with heaven, with what God teaches? I, as one final example, I'll end with this. Uh, I, I remember after the last election, um, I had a Christian friend who, I had two different Christian friends who they voted for different political parties and in the first election, one of the things that you've, that's kind of interesting is after every election year, right after election day, suicides spike. There's like a weird rash of suicides uh, for whoever lost the election, okay? And it's always, it's well known, it's a well-known phenomenon that uh, researchers have talked about. Um, and uh, I had, you know, what was funny is, is I had these two Christian friends, the one of them, they, their candidate lost in this election, and then the other one, their candidate lost in the next election. Uh, they're on opposite sides. Both of them were depressed. Both of them were almost suicidal. Both of them said, democracy is over. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and as I was talking with them, you know, both of them were Christians, but I knew just by listening to them that actually, if they were to, if I was to get into their, their, their sin narrative and their solution narrative, it was not fully biblical. It was like, yeah, well, yeah, Jesus, yeah, Jesus is the answer, but I want my agenda. You know what I'm saying? Like, you could tell that they had kind of constructed their own version of Christianity that was almost like 80% political activism and then 20% Christian and and of course, you know, unfortunately, as a result, they were living out sorrow, but they couldn't understand why. It was because they couldn't acknowledge that actually 
You have a form of syncretism. And I finally told him, hey, it's actually, it's okay to be political. In fact, I encourage you to be political. I, I, like, I think we need Christians in both political parties, but it's wrong to trust in it to the degree that you are. Does that make sense? And I, I pointed that out to them and they were like, you know, like, like, what do you mean? Well, I just started bringing them into the biblical worldview. And so I, I said, well, Psalm 146 says, do not put your trust in princes, and in case you happen to live in a place that doesn't have a prince, in human beings who cannot save, the Bible is very clear, okay? Do not put your trust in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, their God. Blessed, the, what's the opposite of blessing? Cursing, okay? So cursed is the person who puts their trust in princes. Okay, and, I, and I, I just, all I had to do is go through history and say, all these movements and all these wars and all these people that died and then the pendulum swings and then the pendulum swings back and then the pendulum swings and then the pendulum swings back and then the, there's only one government that technically will, that, that actually is going to, to exist in a while called the kingdom of heaven. You, you realize there's actually all governments should fail and will fail. It's prophesied all throughout the scripture. Now, does that mean we should let it? You know, like throw a fuel can on the fire, let it burn. No, I, I again, you, we should be active, right? We should be salty, but, but, but not so much that we're actually trusting in it more than this. And I pointed that out to this individual. I'm like, listen, all throughout the Bible, God took wicked kings and changed them, used them for his purpose. And all throughout the Bible, there were good kings that turned bad and didn't do a single thing. And I'm like, hey, listen, you could have gotten your candidate and they could have turned bad. And guess what? God can turn a bad candidate good. Did you know that? Actually, that's why we pray. Really, what I was trying to do is welcome them out of their syncretism into a new worldview that actually brings joy, that actually brings peace, that ultimately is good news that all people, can embrace, not just the people who already agree with your, your idea. You get the idea. You see, and, and what's fun about the, the conversation is not only did that person get resaved, so to speak, but they were able to lead all their friends who worship the same idol to, that, to a worldview that is, is built on the rock of Jesus Christ. Now listen, all of us have syncretism and all of us have relatives that actually their worldview is hedonism, their worldview is materialism, their worldview is fill in the blank. I think all of us, really, when it comes to witnessing, it's first off, making sure that our own hearts are pure, and then secondarily, helping people identify, how's that worldview working for you? Because at the end of the day, it, it, the question is not faith or not faith, it's faith in this versus faith in that. How is that working for you? And I think that's a question that all of us need to ask, and maybe you're here today, and, and you're like, well, I feel like I'm a Christian and it's not working for me. Well, maybe. That sorrow is intended to, to illuminate an aspect of your life that needs to get sanctified, that the Lord wants to get into and he wants to speak to you about. Or maybe you're here and you're a skeptic and you don't know what you think about all this. Hey, at the very least, I want you to consider that, hey, try test driving this whole Christian worldview thing. Really get into the Bible for four or more days. Really see what it does to your soul, test it for yourself. You don't even have to take my word for it because at the end of the day, it, it's, you're living your life, I'm not, you know? 
But I'll, I'll tell you what, man, when I get God's word in my life, I can look back on my life and say, it is a thousand percent better than what it was like when I tried to do this weird thing and just make my own little world religion. And I just really believe that God would like to welcome you into that. You see, I'm just being a witness to a different worldview. And so, hey, just bow your heads, close your eyes. How's life working for you? Father, you've designed it in such a way that our inferior worldviews will lead us to a brick wall. I pray that for anyone who is there, even if that's an inferior form of Christianity, you'd help us to take that next step and draw closer to you. God, just give us a desire for your word. Give us a desire for, for the pure thing, the holy thing. Enable us to go where we could not go on our own. That's why you sent your son to die for us because Lord, we were hopeless to even find true religion until you came to earth and that's what the Christmas season is about. So I pray that you just show up in our lives and that we would truly receive you with glad tidings of great joy right here, right now, in Jesus' name. And if you're agreeing with what I'm praying, say this, say, dear Jesus, forgive me, renew me, and lead me starting today. If you agree with what I'm saying, just say, I mean it, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your life. In Jesus' name we pray.